0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it is Friday, July the 14th, 2023. I am sober, it's morning in California, but I'm not sure America is quite as sober as i am america seems to be on a drug binge we've done lots of shows about it one with carl hart a, i guess we might call him a a left libertarian when it comes to drugs uh, his book drug use for grown-ups chasing liberty in the land of fear is a huge success uh interesting conversation with dr hart another with uh, a real doctor, Peter Green, Grinspoon recently on marijuana, seeing through the smoke, a cannabis specialist untangles the truth about marijuana. Another with Casey Schwartz on Adderall. I'm not sure if that is a drug that's supposed to get us high. It certainly catches, so to speak, our attention. Uh, her book, Attention, A Love Story, is a love story, really, I guess, in some ways about drugs. Um, And then uh, also with William Brewer, we had a really interesting revealing conversation about how psychedelic therapy, psychedelic drugs saved his life. Uh, He has a novel out about it, I guess a kind of psychedelic novel, The Red Arrow. All of this adds up to a different kind of America. So does America reflect our drug binge or does the drug binge reflect America? That's the question. Uh, My guest today, Benjamin Y. Fong, uh, asks in an important and very intriguing new book written from the left, but in a 21st century way, not too ideological, Quick Fixes, Drugs in America from Prohibition to the 21st Century Binge. And uh, Ben is joining us from his garden in Seattle. Ben, I hope you're as sober as I am.
1: I am indeed. It's 10 in the morning.
0: Good, well, congratulations. So um, this 21st century binge of drugs, quick
1: fixes, how
0: how would you summarize it? How would you explain it, Ben?
1: Sure, I I think that Americans are uh, taking a world historic amount of drugs today. Um, I think the most familiar... Aspect of uh, of the drug binge today is the opioid crisis um, and its associated deaths of despair. But really, it's across the board. It's benzodiazepines, it's amphetamines, it's marijuana, it's antidepressants, it's antipsychotics. Uh, really, across the board, Americans are using more drugs than ever. Um, At the same time that uh, we have this still uh, still going war on drugs with the largest prison system in the world, Uh, full one fifth of prisoners are in for nonviolent drug offenses. Um, So it's really this contradiction between America's intense love for and hatred of drugs that I wanted to make sense of in the book.
0: You're writing uh, from the left, Ben, no ambiguity about uh, The yeah. book is published by Verso, uh, the most credible and interesting of uh, left-wing uh, publishing companies. You mentioned the opioid crisis and I guess the white working class. We've done a number of shows about that. How would you fit the opioid crisis into a class analysis of America in the 2020s, particularly the way in which it seems to have affected the white working class, and of course its implications for white populism and and and, and our current Trumpian moment.
1: Sure, um, the the opioid crisis you could think of as uh, the product of two factors. Um, one uh, was a lax regulatory environment uh, where Uh, One particular company, uh, the the Sackler family and and Purdue Pharma, was responsible for irresponsibly pushing opioid medications uh, that hooked a lot of people. They had um, irresponsible advertising around uh, their primary drug Oxycontin. But really you could think of this as um, a a broader problem of uh, pharmaceutical regulations or the lack thereof. Um, Kathleen Friedel, the historian, has called it the pharma cartel uh, in recognition of the fact that it wasn't just Purdue Pharma that there was a a, a lot of different pharmaceutical companies were cashing in on um, on opioid medications at a time when uh, when regulations were relaxed and when the traditional uh, practices around opioids had also changed dramatically uh, with the rise of, of palliative care and other sort of changes within the me- within the medical field. Um, so that was one part. Uh, I think uh, very aggressive. Pharmaceutical industry pushing opioids. I think the other part is just that um, America has a uh, uniquely awful healthcare system, <laughs> and in the absence of uh, of a real healthcare system uh, and uh, the various sort of predations of profits that are allowed therein. Um, you get uh, you get people turning to pills in ever greater numbers, and uh, they're they're very you know effective medications at numbing pain. They're not so effective at uh, at working through that pain in more productive ways. So what about I the racial sure.
0: politics, though? Have, yeah. If 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 the opioid crisis was affecting African Americans more than white Americans, I think the left would be more invested in it. Is there a certain kind of irony in the way in which? early 21st century american capitalism has come to haunt and in some ways destroy the white working
1: class who have always thrown in their lot with it i think the left is concerned with the opioid crisis uh it's it's a major crisis in american society um you know i, I think that the reason that it affected the white working class in particular is um the, the particular geography that the opioid crisis hit. So, um, so you know, the, the sort of famous pill mills that were covered in uh, San Quignones' dreamland, those were in, uh, you know, in the rust belts, in sort of um, dilapidated towns like you know, all over Ohio. Uh, and uh, after the pill mills shuttered, it was um, it was Mexican heroin dealers that went to these towns precisely because they wanted to avoid Um, more uh, violent and already occupied urban areas where drugs are being distributed. And so I think the particular geography of the opioid crisis in the 21st century explains a lot of why the white working class was targeted. And and
0: also, I guess, Ben, in a sense, um, American capitalism, neoliberalism or post neoliberalism has caught up with the white working class.
1: I want to do Absolutely. Um, if there's a defining feature of the neoliberal period since the '70s, it's deindustrialization. It's the gutting of the core industries, uh, you know, rubber, auto, steel, uh, that used to prop up, uh, you know, the working class and its entry into the middle class. Um, and you know, deindustrialization was devastating. It was uh, it was uh, economically devastating, but it was morally devastating as well. And I think. You could see the opioid pill boom as filling in where good jobs ought to be.
0: I want to come back to this, and I want to make sense of it in the context of white populism in America. But your book, uh, I think it's an important book, um, Quick Fixes, Drugs in America from Prohibition to the 21st Century B- in Good. Versoist leftist tradition historicizes this. So you begin with the prohibition. This is the first period that you analyze in terms of quick fixes. Tell us about the politics of prohibition and how it came that one of the most advanced, if not the most advanced industrial country of the early 20th century, banned alcohol for almost 20 years.
1: Yeah, it it should be a fairly shocking fact that in the United States, a country that's uh, historically absolutely loved alcohol, that for a good 13 years, it was totally prohibited. Uh, There were European temperance movements uh, and there were limited experiments in Europe with prohibition, but it never took off in the same way. So I think that there's something to be explained there. And in the book, what I want to say is that there was no development of a real countervailing political force in the United States as you got in Europe so you didn't get powerful workers parties and organizations that allowed some um, some channel for for, um, for for pushing back against the social ills that followed from industrialization and so in the absence you got um, a primarily moral response and that's what I want to say really gave um, the temperance causes uh, their their moral force uh, because there were no um, structural uh, solutions to the problems of capitalist society because there were there wasn't a real countervailing political force that was coalescing. Reformers targeted the social ills that followed from industrialization with a primarily moral response.
0: So in a sense, yeah, it, it's a really important point. Instead of the German Social Democratic Party or Rosa yeah. Luxemburg, America got um, William jennings bryan who ran unsuccessfully for president three times in the democratic party the hero on the left at the beginning of the 20th century and a man very much associated with with prohibition tell us about brian and why he speaks to the this what you call the, the 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 privatization of morality uh, amongst progressive Americans at the beginning of the 20th century, late 19th
1: century? Well, I can't speak too much to Brian. He doesn't really feature in the book. I mean, I can say that... Um, but he's important
0: the pro- in the narrative, isn't he? I oh, mean course. Maybe- yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, the pro- progressives sort of more, more generally are important in the narrative insofar as they saw very clearly the social ills that followed from capitalism while having a kind of confused response. So it wasn't all bad. I mean, I um, talk a lot about the uh, the Women's Christian Temperance Union in the book, and uh, in in many ways this was this was the groundwork for for women's suffrage in America. Um, on the other hand, um, you know they were they were very confused in in their politics. It was a primarily middle class organization, and they mixed some very good political proposals with a lot of sort of uh, overly moralized rhetoric, and so their response tended to be um, more confused. Um, in 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 a way that it wasn't when it was carried out by strong workers organizations as in as in europe
0: and what about the role of women women dominated the prohibition movement i mean my understanding and, and please correct me ben if i'm wrong a lot of women were strongly in favor of prohibition because their drunk husbands or boyfriends would come home and abuse them um to what extent should prohibition be seen as in some ways the beginning of a, a, a viable political
1: feminism in America? Oh, it very much was. And the experiences in fighting for prohibition were taken up in the in the fight for suffrage as well. Um, there was a class element there as well. I think that if there's a if there's a target of the national temperance movements that developed in post-developed America, it was um, the 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 profligate male immigrant drunk who went to the local saloon and this was a fairly new phenomenon with um post post civil war urbanization Um, you got much more visible drinking in urban spaces and it was primarily uh men who would visit the saloons um they're predominantly male establishments and um you know they would get very drunk in uh, in in their time their limited time off um, and it was uh, it it was their um, their 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 wives that were um, that were concerned about the drinking, but it was the the WCTU is primarily a middle class organization. It was middle class women looking on lower class men and finding them morally reprehensible. Um, so I think there's it's uh, it's Hillary.
0: Clinton. What did Hillary Clinton say about these people?
1: Uh, well, she said. Uh, She said a lot of different things. Yeah, but what was the
0: famous one? What did she describe them as? Um,
1: Are you talking in the realm of drugs
0: now? Uh, Well, not drugs, just general behavior. What did she call them? Not the republic.
1: Uh, Uh, Well, the reprehensible. Yeah, the
0: reprehensible. So it's it's still that upper upper class or upper middle class white female distaste for working class men.
1: Yes, that was very much pervasive in the WCTU.
0: Hillary would have been a, a prohibitionist, wouldn't she? I can speculate about I that. I mean, not that we can yeah. speak on behalf of Hillary Clinton. Only she can do that. And she's always no, welcome to come on the show, of course. What's interesting also about the prohibitionist is one thing I never really understood, Ben. Maybe you could explain it. It divided Republicans and yeah. capitalists. I mean... The, the wealthy capitalists um, in New York City, for example, they weren't in favor of, of prohibition. Uh, how, how would you make sense of the relationship between capitalism and prohibition, especially in its yeah. impact on important industries like the alcohol industry?
1: They were for a while. I mean, uh, Rockefeller, Ford... Uh, William Randolph Hearst, there was a good segment of the capitalist class that was very much for prohibition in a limited sense, I should say. Um, And I I think that at root, that has to do with the fact that, um, I mean, there there were a lot of different uh, factors that played into the movement for prohibition. It's one of the reasons it was successful, because it formed a coalition of so many different disparate groups. But I would say the key thing there is that there was a, a really uh, palpable concern with the issue of worker discipline in a new mechanized age. Right? When, you, when you sent workers out into the field, if they were high or drunk, it didn't really matter that much. But if you send a drunk worker into a complex production process in a factory, things could go really wrong. And so there was this new, new modern concern with like how workers ought to behave in, in these new settings. Um, and I think that's why um, a strong portion of the capitalist class, despite their own personal um, feelings about about alcohol, many were abstainers, but many thought the prohibition cause was ridiculous. Despite their personal feelings, they were supportive of it at first. Now, you know, midway through prohibition, they turned on the dry cause and it's because they turned on it that, uh, you know, gave impetus to its repeal. Um, but at first they were very supportive of it.
0: It seems to me, uh, Ben, that prohibition is is a, a un- American thing in the sense that <laughs> Americans could have their moral cake and also have their drinks. Everyone everyone was morally outraged one way or the other by prohibition, and America went on drinking. If anything, under prohibition, America seems <laughs> to have dr- drunk more than pre-prohibition. So there's something uniquely American about the kabuki quality of prohibition that it never really existed it was something that people pretended
1: existed but didn't really yeah, I mean, there there were very comical workarounds. Um, some companies would sell uh, grape fermentation kits. That <laughs> yeah, put, That's the beginning of the spend. wine business, too. Right? Yeah. I mean, they there it was comical in one way, and especially in urban centers, you can get all sorts of funny stories during Prohibition about different ways in which people basically just clouded the law. So, um, there was that aspect to it. I should also say though, that there was a more insidious aspect. Um, the historian uh, Lisa McGurr has recently covered this in a book called The War on Alcohol. Um, and as as comical as uh, prohibition was in places like New York City, in other areas, it was in in many ways the beginning of the war on drugs. It was a new way in which vigilante groups would demonize um, uh demonize minorities. It was a way in which uh, new, um, new policing apparatuses sort of like got their, got their start. In, in, in many ways, the Prohibir- Prohibition Bureau paved the way for the Bureau of Narcotics after Prohibition was repealed. Um, So there's a there's a more insidious uh, part. Yeah. And I mean, uh,
0: I don't know if you've read Beverly Gage's book on J. Edgar Hoover, but certainly Hoover's beginning was in the prohibition and the beginnings, the origins of the uh, of the FBI. And of course, the racial element, the KKK was outspokenly in favor of prohibition. Let's move on to the second stage, which you describe as a, a Fordist Keynesian period in um in in the narrative of american quick fixes what changed in the 1930s post prohibition of course fdr uh in the stroke of the of his pen uh, ended prohibition in 1932 or 3 when he was elected president
1: Yeah, I think the key development there is that in ending prohibition, he also inaugurated the New Deal, uh, which actually put uh, the United States on the course for the kind of prosperity that temperance reformers were promising. And in that new era, which was building a, a new kind of consumer society, the old moral paternalism of prohibition, it really didn't find a target anymore, uh, it didn't find a home. And so the temperance movement sort of lived on, but um, no, no one took it as quite as seriously. And um, And in its absence and with the new imperatives of the consumer society, it was a time of pretty outrageous drug use. I mean, this was the, the the peak of cigarette and coffee consumption in the United States, um, but a, a wide range of drugs, am- amphetamines or benzodiazepines, were all um, legal substances. Not only that, but they were really easy to get. They were practically adult candy in the post-war period. And in the book, I want to argue that... Um, Part of that reason was the war um, all these drugs were available to soldiers uh during the second you world mean war. after the
0: first world war not the second world
1: war. no the second the second okay. so in the second world war soldiers came home 45 and um and you know had had gotten used to having these different drugs amphetamines in particular uh and so there 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 wasn't really a culture of um, seeing much danger around these things and so um they were sometimes available like, by prescription but even, you know, as late as 1965, you could get a methamphetamine inhaler over the counter in the United States.
0: So let's then, so so we have the New Deal. Are you, like many people on the left, Ben, are you nostalgic for that second stage, that Fordist Keynesian moment, the New Deal? Or do, do you believe that we can go back to it or does history, as <laughs> Marx teaches us, move forward inevitably and unavoidably?
1: i I think that there's a kind of productive nostalgia uh that can be had for the new deal uh they did a lot of things right especially after a couple of drinks right in 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 the labor upsurge of the 30s there's a lot to learn from there we can't go back we can't recreate the old structures but we should also learn from them and i think that there's a lot to learn from in um in the 30s i really Uh, set the the United States on a kind of path dependency during the war uh, that that led to a post-war prosperity in which the working classes broadly shared. Uh, What
0: happened, Ben, uh, to the tradition of William Jennings Bryan? That sort of agrarian idealism, I guess, Uh, a, a Protestantism of the left after Prohibition. Did these people remain secret prohibitionists or did they join the party? it's so to speak
1: well i think the depression really reset a lot of things in the in the united states It reset politics reset the labor movement and um and it it just it it lost its moral force i think in a lot of ways um people who once thought of it as as making sense within the united states who once sort of occupied a certain moral universe with the with the, the 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 various crises of the great depression um it it just no it just didn't have an anchor anymore in American society, and I think that people were, um, you know, from from a lot of different classes in American society, were very willing to try out uh, radically new things and to dispense with the old ideas.
0: What about in the context of the Cold War, Ben? the The Soviet Union was puritanically opposed to drug use of one kind or another. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the I think in some well. ways, it was alcohol that eventually brought it down. How would you compare and contrast drugs in America and drugs in the Soviet Union in the second half of the 20th century?
1: Um, I can't say I know that much about drug use in the Soviet Union other than, uh, than the, uh, alcohol use. Um, you know, I, I don't think that any country even closely matches the United States drug consumption in the post-war period. I don't think it's particularly close. Um, Part of that has to do with the fact that um, the Second World War made very clear to, um, to people in government that controlling international drug flows was going to be a top priority um and so it was a it was a very aggressive campaign there's a book by uh, the historian susanna rice called we sell drugs uh it's all about this period and uh both both illicit and illicit markets were kind of cornered by the united states and so in terms of like overall drug use not just alcohol use but drug use um, the United States, you know, blows away all other countries during the period.
0: Yeah, it, as you say, literally blows it away. Yeah. So this third stage, and for, from the left perspective, this is the bad stage. We have what you call neoliberalism. Is this sort of connected also with Vietnam? You, you mentioned yeah. global drug use. Troops, I didn't actually know that troops brought drugs back or drug use back from the second world war of course vietnam is famously associated with american drug use how is the history of neoliberalism in america from i guess the 60s or late 60s 70s onwards and drugs in america how are they connected
1: the people generally see the neoliberal period as inaugurating in the early 1970s Um, And quite conveniently, this was uh, the time when new drug legislation was taking hold. In 1970, there was the Controlled Substances Act, which created the modern drug scheduling system that's still with us today. Um, And it was the beginning of the, uh, I mean, what I call in the book, the acute phase of the war on drugs. The war on drugs had been going on basically since the beginning of the 20th century, but Nixon really inaugurated its acute phase. And as you said, um, uh, uh, returning Vietnam vets was very much an that they were very much in his crosshairs uh there was a huge concern at the time that um that uh, vietnam uh, that soldiers in vietnam who were using uh, opium and heroin that they would come back to the united states and cause this new drug scourge that didn't really happen uh demonstrating i think that drug use is um, is, is very much influenced by situational uh, contexts um, uh, but there were other things that Nixon and and company were concerned with. Um, uh, his uh, his uh, domestic affairs advisors, John John Ehrlichman, uh, said, you know, we wanted to control black people and control the new right. Right. So
0: when so uh, when Nixon used the word drug, I mean, he's famously associated yeah, with right. dog whistle language and politics. When when Richard Nixon said drugs, was he really talking about? black Americans do you think in his mind or certainly in the messages he was giving
1: well according to Ehrlichman who offers this remarkable admission he said like we were trying to target um, black people in the new left and uh, we tried to associate both with drugs and by demonizing drugs we could control those populations and um, so I think that they he definitely had his political enemies uh, in in mind I I want to argue in the book though more generally that basically, anytime someone talks about controlling drugs, they're actually talking about controlling people. That it's the populations associated with the kinds of drug use that they're describing that are the, the problem and not necessarily the drugs.
0: What about the left um, and drug use? I'm thinking of yeah. Ginsburg, of course, uh, and the psychedelic movement of the 50s, and then Uh, the embrace of the left or certainly the counterculture of drug use in the 1960s. How how do you make sense of the way in which the left did or didn't embrace drug use in this neoliberal period?
1: I think it was something of a disaster, uh, in perfect honesty. I think that a lot of the bad tendencies on the left were Uh, inaugurated during this period and I can't see it as unconnected to the drug use of the time I mean the kinds of um, insurrectionary fantasies that a lot of new left groups took on it's hard to divorce that from um, from widespread drug use Um, so I I don't see it as a as a particularly um, salutary development in the history of the left and I think in a lot of ways it put it on um, it put the left on the uh, on a very much on a path of marginalization um, that we're still sort of working through today.
0: It was a left libertarianism. Are you, in a way, yeah. reviving a more puritanical tradition on the left of, of <laughs> William Jennings Bryan? Are you suggesting that drugs, so to speak, um, when, when we are thinking of seeing through the smoke? Yeah. stops us seeing the nature of things that drugs uh takes people's minds off class struggle or capitalism or power all the things that interest you
1: no i hope not i mean i'm definitely not interested in reviving some kind of like neo prohibitionism i think that um that americans have been dealing with that strand of the treatment of drugs for well over a century and, um, you know, it's not only proven a failure on its own terms, but it's borne uh, all sorts of pernicious consequences. At the same time, as you say, I'm um, skeptical of new decriminalization and legalization movements. I don't think that they take seriously the, um, the sort of pathological forms of drug use. in contemporary So you wouldn't American be a society. fan,
0: for example, of Karl Hart's work and his arguments?
1: There's there's a lot that I agree with in Dr. Hart's work. Um, there's a lot there that I think is right. I mean, and and in general, the the key reforms of uh, of uh, or the key proposals of liberal drug reformism, uh, including you know reforming laws around mandatory minimums, legalizing marijuana, different uh, reforms around policing. I think I think that they're all um, good good demands. I do think, however, that there are broader structural problems of American society. And until you tackle those, you're not going to tackle the uh, issues associated with drugs. And in the conclusion, I focus in particular on jobs and healthcare. That if uh, Americans had uh, better paying, meaningful jobs, and if they had a healthcare system that actually functioned, a lot of the problems we associate with drug use would go away. And in fact, it would provide us with. What I what I say is a free relationship to drugs, right? We 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 should we should seek a world where people use drugs not because they're coping with the structures of American society, but because they actually want to take drugs and see what they can do with them.
0: So this our current stage is the post neoliberal stage. We've done lots of shows about it. What comes after neoliberalism? No one's come up with a term. Yeah. But it is our age of anxiety, our age of isolation, of atomization. Do you think that America's current drug binge uh, and uh, our American's general addiction to one kind of drug or another from psychedelics to Adderall to marijuana, that that's a reflection of this post-neoliberal world?
1: I think it's really hard not to see it as a reflection of the numerous crises we're going through right now. Um, you know, as you say, there's no term for what comes after neoliberalism, and that's because we don't know what comes after neoliberalism. Um, we're in this period of transition, and in it, uh, um, the you know, drug use has been normalized in, in, in new ways, um, as it was in, in some ways during the post war period. Um, you know, so we get legalization movements in marijuana and psychedelics. And, uh, as I said at the beginning, um, it's a moment of fabulous drug use. Um, and yeah, I mean, just more generally, it's, it's difficult to see all of these trends as, as unconnected to the current moment of anxiety and uncertainty.
0: You call it psychopharmacology. Um, it's a very interesting take. And I wonder what the the tech piece of this is. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg has made a multi-billion dollar bet on the metaverse as an alternative reality. It seems as if increasingly there's less and less of a distinction between humans and machines. How how does this play out in our techno-fixated world, uh, Ben? Are you fearful that the binge will eventually turn us into machines and in an odd sort of psychedelic or surreal way will return to the Fordism of the early 20th century only as machines rather than as human beings?
1: I'll get to the first part of the question first. Um, The, you know, the... The oddness of the moment is captured in um, stories about Elon Musk taking ketamine or Peter Thiel cornering synthetic psilocybin patents. Um, the ruling class has a real fascination with drugs at the present moment. And I think if there's a reason to both hold off a renewed drug prohibitionism at the same time as we're skeptical of new legalization movements, it's it's that, it's that um, Silicon Valley is very invested in this in these new uh legalization and decriminalization movements um that being said i don't think that they're going to deliver what many people uh, promise they will drugs are a great way of numbing the pain of disconnection but they're not going to replace basic human realities Um, and there's this constant fear you get this in you know various dystopian uh science fiction movies about how people are going to be um, drugged into becoming machines or just everyone's going to exist in their own tub of butter using the, their, their special cocktail of drugs. I think that drugs are very efficient at doing the things they do. I don't think that they're going to ever solve human problems in, in either a authoritarian way or a, or a, or a democratic way. Um, and that that those problems take actual work they take communication they take working with other people um, and drugs are um, a fun distraction sometimes from that work but they're not going to they don't they don't pose that kind of danger to the problems of human society
0: one of the really interesting stories these days Ben, and I'm sure you've given some thought to it is the appearance of these new that they're, they're not really drugs conventionally but these drugs supposed to control the body and appetite and enable americans to lose weight americans of course yeah. being most obese people in the world now there's research suggesting that some of these medicines are actually might encourage suicide how, how does this fit in to your narrative
1: yeah it's a constant promise of the drug industry to deliver us some drugs that's going to solve a problem like weight loss uh, that a lot of people are concerned with. Um, The story of the amphetamines is really bound up in this. I mean, when amphetamines were first put on the market in the 1930s, um, they were put on as mood enhancers, but they were mulling different possibilities and weight loss was one of them. Amphetamines do help you lose weight. Um, And and really, since then, there haven't been great developments in that market. Amphetamines are kind of still the best drugs um, for that. For, for that purpose, but I think, as everyone also knows, they also have very detrimental effects if you take them quite regularly. Um, so it's it's one of those constant promises that uh, the drug industry wants to uh, to bait us with.
0: Ben, has anything really changed? Thinking of uh, Huxley's Brave New World, his dystopia of the 1930s, dominated by soma, is anything? that different in a hundred years since
1: since huxley wrote brave new world there's a there's another huxley book called island i think it is uh where he he imagines uh, much the same <laughs> scenario from brave new world but actually uh thinks of it as a good thing as uh, drugs is, as propping up new forms of human subjectivity uh so there's 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 two sides to that and i think that that sort of schizoid alternation between um, real fears around drug use and uh, ideas that drug use can be liberatory in new ways. That has been constant in American society for well over a hundred years. I think it's taken different forms in the different periods we've talked about. So in, in one way, it's cycled between um, demonization and normalization. So demonization with industrialization, normalization in the post-war period, demonization with neoliberalism, and then a new period of normalization today. Um various things have happened in 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 the interim and i think that the kinds of overlapping crises that american society is experiencing today it's difficult to know sort of what what comes next and so i would i would say at at the same time that um we're dealing with the same problems as ever that the particular crises that we're encountering today um, and the new legalization and decriminalization movements that have have attended them um, it's, it's a novel situation and I'm hesitant to make predictions with it.
0: Ben, ben finally, um, you've danced around the prohibition left issue, but I wonder, as as progressives look for ideas that are popular, if not populist, what's wrong with prohibition if it's articulated correctly? As you suggest, people need to see through the smoke of early 21st century capitalism, why shouldn't we return to William Jennings Bryan in his concern with the fate of human beings? Um, especially, you know, Biden obviously is 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 a kind of manifestation of the stultification of the left in America. Um, couldn't this be dressed up in a in a a healthy way moving away from the left libertarianism um which as you suggest is a is a cul-de-sac ideologically
1: I definitely don't think that the left should cede um the social critique wholly to the right and I think that that's been a historic mistake to, to 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 not see increasing drug use across the board as in some way pointing to um, to real social issues that we should be dealing with. And so in that sense, I'm not a, a left libertarian. Um, at the same time, I don't think that there's much future in reviving prohibitionism because no one really likes it. And especially in, um, it, you know, since the rise of consumer society, that kind of direct moral paternalism, I think has pretty limited political import. I don't think people are attracted to that on a broad scale. And so I don't, I don't think there's anything to revive there. I mean, as I said again, I'm, the book is not against contemporary drug use. The book is against um, the, uh, that use within the context of American society and the kinds of imperatives that spur that drug use. And so I would say that what, what we need today is not a new prohibition. What we need today is not a new, new kind of drug peddling. What we need is a freer relationship to drugs so that we don't have to feel the same compulsions to use them or the the compulsions to prohibit them.